Carrie Gress joins us today. She is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and author of 10 books, uh, including The Anti-Mary Exposed. Uh, her new book is The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Uh, that's our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Grass. You're a philosophy PhD from, from Catholic University. So uh, welcome, Dr. Grass. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, let, let's, let's, let's begin with basics. Give us a definition first of patriarchy. When we hear about the patriarchy, yes. what, what, yeah. are, what, what do they mean by that? I think that's a great question. And of course, you're starting off with the one thing I did not put in the book, which is a definition of patriarchy. So you, you've got my Achilles uh, heel already. Um, but I think it's clear now from the, the context of the, the whole project. But patriarchy is really, um, you know, it's obviously this idea that comes from scripture. It's this idea of um, men being given this sort of sacred order um, amongst, you know, offered to us by God. And it, it comes, it's come to mean things like the hierarchy of the church and as well as hierarchy of the, the military, all of these great ways in which men's gifts are, are featured to create and structure civilization. Um, so that that is the, one of the main things that has really been attacked. But ironically, it's it's been um, the word patriarchy was actually popularized by Engels. Few people know that the smashing the patriarchy usage was a, a, a piece of the whole communist effort to tear down what they saw as the, you know, the oppressive cultures and or oppressive classes. Um, and then it was just applied to men. So that's really a, a broad understanding of, of how it's being used in, in a negative way in the, the culture today, that that's the perception because of the Marxist influence, that it's the patriarchy that really is oppressing women and women are uh, the oppressed, according to these sort of Marxist categories that have been applied to the movement. Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's great. You go back to that. A lot of people don't know. I think Engels' biggest publication as single author was a study of the family. I can't remember yes. the, the exact what? title. Of yeah, it. and it's in my book. I don't remember the title of it either, but it's um, definitely yeah. discussed it. And, yeah. and a lot of people maybe don't realize that Marxism from, from the start, the family is a bourgeois formation. Yeah. It has to be undone as much as capitalism. Has Absolutely. to be has to be undone. So so good good. Well, uh, uh, how again? again well, maybe, maybe I'll wait. I was going to ask you how has feminism typically sought to undo this state of affairs, and and if you, if you want to sort of reflect on that as we go along. But you do mention early in the book. We'll get to something very specific on the other end. A two thousand nine National Bureau of Economic Research study and the 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 uh, nber is sort of gold standard stuff it's yeah. it's it's conducted by the, the government and uh how did that study rate the success of feminism in making women more free the promise making women more free and yeah. fulfilled uh what did it say and how was it received yeah, well, I mean, basically, it said that women are not haven't been made happier by feminism. They've actually been they've become more de depressed, more suicidal, larger substance abuse. You know, all of these kinds of of um, statistics are, are are part of that metric. And um, I don't know if all of those were specifically used in that study, but I I've been doing my own study on it as well, and it's just been amazing to see how things are just getting worse for women. Um, so they they already this data has been available for a long time, like you said, since two thousand nine at least. And what happened to the study is it was just completely 
like sandbagged. I mean, n nobody refers to it. It's it's really just become this kind of non-entity. Um, and that's because it goes against the narrative that, that women should be getting happier with feminism. The more feminism we have, um, one would think that the you know the more we're empowering women, then that's what should really be leading us to to happiness, and that's definitely not what's happening at all. And that's the message that is is clearly not getting out to women. Why have so many people been unable to absorb the empirical evidence mm -hmm. of of decline at a time of you know putatively greater freedom? Uh, but yeah. declines on these other measures, including happiness. Why have they been unable to absorb that evidence? I mean, aren't these the people who tell us nonstop that we must trust science? Yeah. Well, I think that the, the evidence is, is fascinating to me because one of the problems that we have is just how completely absorbed this idea has become in the narrative that, that women are fed, you know, I've been fed this since I was a child, um, that, you know, it's in the, all of our media, it's in Hollywood, it's in politics, it's in fashion design, fashion magazines, book publishing, you know, all of this has, has really absorbed this idea. And if you go against it, um, you're either going to be ignored or you're going to be ridiculed, you're going to be canceled, you know, all of those things have very crafty ways of getting rid of women. Even if you look at something like The View, if there's probably never been a single episode of The View where there have been more conservatives than there have been liberals as hosts on that show. It's probably just never happened, and that's how they control the messaging is by making sure that the conservative women are always underrepresented. And not, you know, even though the population doesn't skew that way, there's it's it's closer to you know half and half. Um, so I, I think this is the real problem. And the other reality is, is that we are told over and over again that we need to be grateful for what feminism has given us. Uh, you know, I, even a few weeks ago, I had someone tell me this, that I should, you know, shame on me for looking at the problems of feminism when I have, you know, received the fruits of it because I have an advanced degree or because I work outside the home. And this is just this guilt cycle that we've been in, gotten involved in. And so people just don't really realize that it actually hasn't been that great for women. And, you know, furthermore, a lot of these ideas that, um, and these privileges or these rights that women have, uh, these are kind of, you know, natural law ideas. We didn't need to destroy the whole culture in order for women to have, um, you know, the capacity to get a higher, get, you know, degree or go to work or something like that. So I, I think that there's a lot of reasons why we don't know this. We don't, we're not hearing about the empirical evidence, and we probably know people in our personal lives, but that certainly doesn't represent the, the massive culture and that the larger picture is just not being presented. Yeah. Let me ask, a, a, if I may, a biographical question. You, you get your PhD in philosophy at Catholic. Uh, did, you, did you not want to pursue an academic career or, or end up not pursuing an academic career? I mean, in the academy proper, you do have an academic career, really. Uh, but but in in one of the one of the universities, yeah. because of the the politics of the academy, did, was that a factor? Well, there were all kinds of things. I you know I finished my PhD a few months after I had my third child, and um, I, you know I worked on my dissertation in labor and delivery. I mean, I was really determined to get this this project done after all the years of hard work and effort. Um, but I, um, you know, the bigger thing for me was that I just wanted to be, stay home with my, my children. That was a bigger priority. And, um, you know, I've dabbled in different areas and 
obviously book writing is something that's really conducive with being a stay-at-home mom. But um, yeah, I, I also did do not didn't relish the idea of going into academia and getting into all the politics and and battles and all of that. So I it's it's been something that I've I've tried to sidestep in a lot of respects. And I you know I think this is one of the things that has worked out for me is that I have the capacity to write kind of things that are a little bit more researched, um, but at the same time write in a much more popular voice so that I, it transcends academic books and, and articles and things like that and can get out to a popular audience. So I think it's worked out. I don't know that I will ever go into academia, especially, you know, I, my kids are still quite young, so it'll be a while before I could do that with any kind of, um, you know, devotion of time. But um, yeah, I think so far it's it's been a really good hybrid for, for me and for my family. Yeah. Your, your director, your head at EPPC, Ryan Anderson, he, he's now one of those one of those controversial trustees at New College in Florida. He might share some stories about about academia and and uh, uh, the kind of conversations a conservative has in in that place. Uh, yeah. Back to the book. In the book proper, you begin with a historical survey of backgrounds and you start with the French Revolution. How yeah. was that an impetus for for feminism? Um, yeah, I think it's, it, you know, the French Revolution was really the spark in a lot of respects um, because Mary Wollstonecraft was writing at the time of the French Revolution. And she's really, you know, people call her the, the grandmother, godmother of the feminist movement. And I, I think you can't understand Mary Wollstonecraft unless you understand that the time period in which she's writing, she's writing, you know, is all kinds of of uh, societal structures are being brought down in France and people are suggesting that this happens in England. And um, so she's actually, it's really interesting. There's a book called um, The Great Debate that's written by my colleague Yuval Levin um, that goes back, it looks at, at Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, who are both, Burke is an, the English conservative who's saying, you know, the French Revolution is awful because it's tearing down all of these things and it's murderous and it's horrible. And of course, Thomas Paine is saying, you know, no, this is a great revolution and, and talking about the rights of men. Well, Wollstonecraft jumps into the debate with her own project called The Vindication of the Rights of Men, followed up by The Vindication of the Rights of, of Women. Um, so she, to understand what she's doing, you have to sort of see her in, in light of the whole project. And I think that um, she clearly in her early work talks about this idea of getting rid of patriarchy, getting rid of hierarchy, and really, um, you know, along with the revolution, just sort of flattening culture and creating this equality. Um, and I, I think her intentions were good. I mean, I, especially at that point in history, women suffered tremendously um, for so many reasons. So many were close to prostitution or starvation or um, certainly death in childbirth. And I think kind of realities that are very hard for us to wrap our minds around. But I think that she's she one of the things that she did was ask the question, how do we help women? And her answer really was by making them more like men. And I think that that is what set off the, the feminist movement in really a, a bad direction, because that seems to be the answer over and over and over again throughout the ages is how do we make women more like men? And, you know, if you look at our, our own culture today, it's that's why we have to have abortion, because that's really the great equalizer. But now, of course, we're being you know told we can even biologically become more like men. So hmm. I think it starts there. And, you know, it's just a, a slow rolling snowball that just gets larger and larger and larger. Um, right. over the over the decades. But also there's certain people that we know, you know, her son-in-law, Percy Shelley, was a huge player in it that people, very few people realize. 
um, his influence in it, and his actually articulation of the very first independent woman, um, this character named Synthna. So while his wife is writing Frankenstein, he's writing about Synthna, who was this um, woman with no children and no husband, uh, and she her only relationship was actually with Satan. So it's fascinating to see all of these sort of different pieces that I think a lot of us know just historically and sort of tease out, you know, what's going on with the movement? What are the, what are the forces, you know, what elements are, are breaking out of this and that ended up becoming really the feminist movement? I, I was amazed. You went into Shelley's, uh, the, the Leon and Stithna, the Revolt of, Is Revolt of Islam, these massive poems with these, yeah. these wild characters that I didn't think anybody but a small subset of graduate students specializing in romantic poetry had to read. It's amazing that you, you it, it speaks well of, of your, you, you do your homework. Very good. Very <laughs> good. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> now, one thing you, you, you follow from Mary Wollstonecraft, you move to, to Mary Shelley, her, her, mm -hmm. her daughter, and, and others through the 19th century and into the 20th century. One motif you bring up, it, it sort of stands out, uh, and that is the number of them who were I'm going to use your words, broken by parent abuse, sexual trauma, drugs, and mental illness, as well as relationships with abusive men. Yeah. Uh, how much should we look at that as important to the genesis of the theories, the feminist theories, the abstract principles? Uh, it's an invitation to, to look and see, did this come out of sort of unusually dysfunctional conditions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that was one of the things that, I mean, the book is really broken up to, into four parts. Um, the first part is what I call the lost girls. And that's the, all these women that are, you know, from Wallstonecraft up to, um, you know, someone more con contemporary like Angela Davis or Kate Millett or someone. Um, and then I move to um, what I call the mean girls, which is what we've been dealing with for the last couple of decades where, you know, these, these aren't just, there's a lot of power and angst and, and um, force being, being used to sort of manipulate people. Um, and then no girls, which is, of course, the, the stage we're moving into, which is where the, the complete erasure of, you know, trying to get rid of women's sports, trying to get rid of um, gender altogether. Um, and then, of course, there's a conclusionary part um, called, I think, the, um, the way home. But that, yeah, I think absolutely that looking, it was really, that was one of the amazing things was looking at just this repeated pattern of these women who are very, very broken and really seeing, especially in the second wave of feminism, how much their anger and their rage is really, um, it's an engine for the movement. This is what motivates them. It's this, this unhealed brokenness that they're trying to either deal with or get rid of, or they're trying to prevent, you know, even the, the movement of uh, the lesbian movement. I mean, this has became such a huge part of the, uh, the feminist movement. The second wave was just this belief that women, you know, female to female relationship is really the pinnacle because you didn't have to answer to men ever. Um, you couldn't get pregnant. Like there was just, it was this idealization of the, the female to female relationship. And again, cutting out men because of all the anger and rage at them. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really interesting to start seeing this, this pattern and also a little bit scary or very scary, I should say, because it makes you realize like these are not cool headed people who are looking at public policy and trying to figure out what's the best in the grand scheme of things. But these are people that are being motivated and manipulated in a lot of ways, especially once communism enter enters into the picture um, to dictate 
the what you know public public policy should be on women's issues when in fact that you know again as we've talked about previously that these things are not actually helping women um in some cases personally like Kate Millett mm-hmm. these were down like downright frightening individuals oh yeah no she's absolutely i mean i i i think at some point I've gotten to know Mallory Millett quite well, and um, Mallory she, is her sister, her sister who's still alive, and um, she's been very helpful in terms of my books and um, making suggestions about different things here and there. But um, yeah, I don't think that we understand just how much Kate Millett did to our culture and civilization, um, and I, I think that that story needs to be written at some point. Um, but just how deeply, you know, everything from women's studies programs to um, a lot of the the mental health attitudes we have about how people are helped or and or not helped um she even was involved in iran in in strange and bizarre ways (laughs) so she actually was you know part of the revolution that happened and then ended up getting you know she thought she was going to be part of this new revolution that would be you know promoting women and whatnot and then a few days later was ushered out of the country, you know, was deported from Iran. Um, so anyway, I think, yeah, she's, and she she herself was in and out of mental institutions. Um, she, you know, had all kinds of, um, she was married at one point and was heterosexual and then came out as bi. And then she had a lot of lesbian relationships. And I think she ended up dying as a, married to another woman. Um, so anyway, I think there's a lot about Kate that, People don't know her name well enough for the amount of damage that she really has done to the culture. Yeah, I mean, it was in every every women's studies 101 class was sexual politics. Yeah, and she was on the you know the front cover of Time magazine. I mean, this wasn't like she wasn't known during her own time period. I think she's, and I think partially because she was so mentally ill. You know, one of the things we can see clearly about the feminist movement is it's or any ideology is it, it doesn't like to air its own dirty laundry. And so, she, you know, talking about her being in and out of institution was pro- institutions was probably not great for the movement. And so a lot of the Kate stories and Kate's influence just really, you know, was just wasn't spoken of anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly after she came out as, as a lesbian, then she really became um, persona non gratis. So, uh, yeah, it, it's amazing to, to see how much she did versus how well she how unknown she is at this stage in, in our culture. Yeah. Uh, let me mention another figure from, you know, a, a, a previous generation, not too much uh, before Kate Millett, but that is Betty Friedan. You spend uh, uh, several pages on her and her book, The Feminine Mystique. Was that 60, 61? 63, uh, I think. 63. Mm-hmm. Why did that book become at that moment, such a phenomenal best huge. Yeah. Uh, three million copies in the first few years. I mean, that's huge. It's amazing. Um, I think Betty Friedan was a genius. I think what she did, I mean, it, w- one of the things I really discovered was just how deeply committed she was to the Communist Party and how well she hid it. Um, but she also knew that you couldn't just tell women, you know, her, her big commitment was to getting women out of the home. She called the home a comfortable concentration camp. Um, you know, and she's speaking to the most privileged women in almost all of human history at this stage. I think we have to keep that in mind, too. Um, it's this comfortable concentration camp. But, she, you know, in her journals was found this another Engels quote about how women would never be free unless they were working and unless they were free of the home. It was the home that was really enslaving them. 
And so she she had to figure out a way to make women, you know, think like Marxists, but at, but without using sort of your typical communist um, jargon, because that just wasn't going to do it. Um, so she, in, in her book, I mean, she had a great grasp of, of psychology, and that was her field of study. And so she is able to do several things. The first of all them is to really make it clear that women are victims, that this the home is imposed on us and this is this terrible place and we, ha we have to get out of it or else we're never going to be free. Um, you know, that Arbeit macht frei um, idea that work makes us free. You know, she's, she's literally, this is what she's selling women, American women. Um, but the other thing that she does very tactfully is also just make it, make it, make us feel like we're missing out on something um that we if we're home then we're completely missing out on the, the the life we could be living you know our best life um without husband and, and children and um i think that was why she was so successful is she couched it in very careful language that she knew exactly how she was going to hit the heart of a woman um to get us to to move and to feel motivated that these are the things that we had to do yeah you quote her husband who became her ex-husband saying about about the book, quote, she had time to write it because she lived in a mansion on the Hudson River, mm -hmm. uh, had a full time maid and was completely supported by me. Uh, I, I had to laugh at that. Did others point that out? Because I, I, I haven't heard that too much. Well, I think one of the things that's actually a very consistent um, piece is just how, all, how wealthy most of these women were. I mean, Elizabeth Cady Stan, I think when they were trying to figure out what they were going to complain about, they actually had to ask, you know, their husbands and another, another friend, because they were like, we don't know what middle-class women complain about. <laughs> you know, So um, this is definitely a pattern in, in the movement. And um, so it, it's always, you know, surprising well, who is it that they're really helping because, you know, that's really the poor that have been harmed the most by this. But yeah, um, I I don't recall reading. I mean, the the relationship with with Ferdinand's husband um, obviously fell apart. But it it sounds like she, you know she was just one of those women so irascible and um, just really really difficult to to get along with. And um, you know you see a lot of that in the, the frayed relationship with her husband and and a lot of her work too, or work about her I should say. She faced some some conflicts. Uh, as they, as you know, now started mm -hmm. moving forward over lesbianism, what yeah. was the conflict there? Yeah, well, she didn't. She didn't want lesbianism to be part of the platform at all, and that that was really the an area of conflict for a long time. And then I think she, it was um, you know one of these huge conferences that she was brought out to speak. And I think she just kind of caved. I don't know if it was something, I don't remember if it was something that she had planned on caving on, or if it was just sort of, she's in front of tens of thousands of people. And she, she finally had to give in because she just knew that's the direction in which the movement was, was moving. But she, she very definitely um, decided that she needed to not, you know, maintain her position of, of keeping lesbians out. And a lot of this too, is the weird tension that you see in the sixties um, among the, the, LGTB, or I guess it was just L and G at that point, but um, the gays and lesbians is just how how radical do they want to get? How much do they want to talk about things in the open? Um, how, you know, sort of this, do we want to just sort of look normal? And um, this, is, I think, is really, again, where you see Ferdinand's communist um, background coming into play, because she just wants to fit in and look normal and make it look like 
all of this is just what normal people do. And of course, she's being pushed by the other members of the the movement to be more radical and to be more forthright and whatnot, um, and make it look like it's not just you know the house, the, the neighbors, the nice neighbors next door who can be involved in this, but that's something much bigger and subversive. Um, so that that's it was a real tension, I think, in in all of these movements, and I, we can probably even see this now, you know, with people saying well, we want to push the T out of the LGTB, you know, all of that, all those questions about which letters get to stay and, you know, which ones we're going to add. And I think that tension is always going to be there. Yeah. One phenomenon that you bring out quite nicely is the avid embrace of abortion. I mean, the, the downright pagan celebration yeah. of a procedure that in truth actually leaves a lot of women feeling regret, feeling loss. Uh, what, what is that? What is that? You know, cheer my abortion. Mm -hmm. What is that phenomenon about? How do, you, how do you how do you diagnose that? Yeah, yeah. I you know I think that there's uh, abortion has become uh, you know a religion. It's become the sacrament to to mm -hmm. the left again because you women cannot be um, equal with men according to their way of thinking if our fertility is left untouched because our fertility, you know, we just naturally have children. Um, and that's really what they've, they want to dismantle and they want to, to keep us from doing. They also, you know, make it very clear that our children are an obstacle to our happiness. Um, that, you know, those are, these are the primary things around which most of their thinking really centers around. And this is why we, you know, the women's vote, such an, an issue in the country, um, because so many women have been just you know, told to believe this. Um, and then, of course, there's so many women who have had abortions. And, it, it, you know, what happens when you've been involved in something that painful and difficult? Well, you have, you know, a couple of different directions to go. One of them is repentance and sorrow. Um, and the other one is to double down and, you know, make it a good thing. Um, so I think that that's what we're, we're really seeing is a lot of these broken women that just you know, they, they haven't come to that point where they need to face the reality of killing their own child yeah. and they're, do they're doing the doubling down and they want to just bring more people on and into the, you know, that misery loves company kind of um, attitude, but they also want it to look like it's something that we can celebrate. So yeah, it's, I think it's incredibly ugly and just such a weird turn, um, but not an unexpected turn because of the fact that it's, it is so vital to yeah. the feminist movement. D does that, help explain another phenomenon that you bring out, and that is the reaction to those pro-feminists, pro-abortion people who have second thoughts, like Abby Johnson, mm. one figure that you discuss. And the reaction is not one of, well, disagreement, okay, you're wrong, we wish you did this, but actually humiliation, right? Yeah. Insult shunning it, it it gets pretty vicious doesn't it yeah oh no it's incredibly vicious i've been on the bottom of some of those twitter dog piles and my own book the anti-mary was ex um was canceled at one point and yeah it's it's incredibly vicious and it's not at all you know i mean we're we're this this idea of choice is not really intolerance of course these are the things that do not come into play at all they're very much um just tropes that are used but the reality is is that 
you've got to really toe the line. And I, I think that towing the line just makes it how makes it so clear of what they're hiding, what they're afraid of, that people women might really figure out what what's happening. And, you know, we can even see this in the way that moms are being targeted by the government at this point. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like <laughs> really? They, you know, this this domestic terrorists of moms showing up at school board meetings. That's right. Um so I, I think that this all really points to just the fragility that they recognize their movement has. Um, because if women start figuring out that all these things are just a house of cards, then, you know, that house of cards might really fall. Um, no, and that no. there's a real, there's a real fear there um, that this, this doesn't have the stability or the moral or any kind of reality to it, that we have to just keep shoring it up and making sure that everybody thinks along the same lines as we do. Is there uh, a generation of women, younger women, you, others, Kristen Hawkins, uh, you mentioned, for instance, who are building up, mobilizing a, a serious challenge to the old feminism? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of women. I think there's a lot of women who are starting to question it, who, you know, even just looking at the ages of the, most of the elite women in the culture today, I mean, Diane Feinstein, Ooh. look at how old she is, and Nancy Pelosi, on and on. The, the, this is not like a new cadre of women who are feminists who are promoting it, um, unless you're talking about sort of celebrities and they're, they've got their own thing. But a lot of women are, are really rejecting it. And I think actually this is one of the reasons why the Barbie movie came out, why it's been so popular. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing piece of propaganda if you look at it, because they're using both nostalgia, because I know my generation and below, and well, certainly even older than me, everybody's played with Barbies. We all have sort of those memories. Um, it's also really attractive. Um, it's pink. The clothing is gorgeous. You know, there's a lot of visually compelling imagery there. There's some very touching emotional points of the movie that people have reported. I, I saw it. I didn't think they were that touching. But you can see how they they use this these kinds of trappings to really convey this message that the, the patriarchy is bad, that the world is a mess unless women are in charge and we need to just put men in their place and women are the ones that really need to be in charge because everything is peaceful when women are in charge. Um, so sure, it, it, sure, it, sure it, it is. Sure. Yeah, exactly. I know. So it's a fascinating thing to see it on the screen. And it's gotten a lot of pushback. Actually, people have said, you know, it's so over the top. Who could believe it? And um, that was one of the things that I found in a lot of this feminist literature is just it's so over the top. And it yet is over the top. It gets no pushback. It gets no pushback. Um, and so that that's, I think, the real frustrating piece is, you know, people, men in particular, have no idea what we're getting in our magazines. You know, all these just ridiculous claims. Uh, the View probably is the one place that does get pushback because it's so popular and because it's so well known and it's on date, you know, daytime TV. Um, but otherwise, most of these other things just sort of slide. And that that's really where the deep indoctrination is, is happening. And I think that's why the Barbie movie had to happen because there was sort of this sense of like, we're losing our hold on women. They're starting to think differently mm -hmm. and um, kind of reject this. And so we need to sort of reassert ourselves in these various, in these various ways. There's more in the book. You know, we, we had the lost girls, the mean girls. We also have flyover women. We have the queen bees. But for, for now, the book is the End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Carrie Gress, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.